0: One, uh, Luke chapter one. We're actually going to be in Luke chapter one this week. Next week we're going to close out these chapters. Um, today we're banging out some eighty verses, but it's not not all eighty. Amen, in Jesus' name. But um, not eighty. Actually, two weeks. Losing, getting ahead of myself. Luke's structure in um, in chapter one is it really sets the tone for the rest of the story, like really chapter one, chapter two, chapter two, three, chapter four, they kind of form that block. What we said is, is, is really phase one. It's the beginning. It's, a behind-the-scenes look at the story that Luke is trying to tell, a story that he he is capturing with a particular agenda in mind. First and foremost, he wants Theophilus to be strengthened in his faith. Um, whether you think he's a real person or not is besides the point, but the, the goal is that there would be a strengthening that happens in the heart of Christians, and so he's putting this account together to strengthen people's hearts. But, but right alongside that, there is this Clear push to 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 lift up the God who is fulfilling promises, and so so the the the, the first four chapters are are really this dramatic statement that God. Fulfills promises, Pastor Gio led us there last week, and I just want to kind of spring on that, like use that as a springboard to just say this. The structure here, you have miraculous birth, and then people responding to this to miraculous birth. And, and what is super fascinating is, while what is on top is this idea, the God of the universe is a promise keeper. He makes a word, he keeps his word, all right? Like the God of the universe fulfills the promises he makes. So that's what sits on top of this. But right underneath it, when you start to look at their responses is there is deep reflection and dynamic praise consistently. And so what we're meant to walk away with is that whenever we see God fulfilling his promises, it should produce, it should further deep reflection and dynamic praise. And I just want to start that way. Personally, personally, If you have in your life seen God been faithful to you, reflect on it, celebrate it, praise him for it, rejoice in it, personally. Now, we all have something to sing about, we anthem, death cannot hold you down, it's coming later, but man, I want to talk to you personally, if you could just Like what humility, look at your life with hindsight and just track the faithfulness of God to fulfill the promises that he makes. Like let that push you into further reflection on who he is and propel some significant dynamic praise akin to what Mary did here and what Cliff read. Just needed to say that. Promise I'm not going to preach for an hour. We got Q&A. That's why the chair's up here to keep me on track. Jesus name. But there is an idea I do want to explore. There's an idea that that rises from this, this scene between Gabriel, Mary, Mary, and Elizabeth, and the song that she ends up singing at the back half onto God, that's that Luke decides to memorialize for all time. There's an idea that just that just rises to the surface from this disruptive scene. It's super disruptive. And this dynamic praise and the idea is this. God lifts the shame and restores the dignity of people through Jesus Christ, the King of the world. That is the idea that just, you got to see it. God lifts the shame and restores the dignity of people through Jesus Christ, the King of the world. Now, there's three parts to that idea. God is a lifter of shame. Second part to that idea, he's a restorer of dignity. Third part to that idea, all of it happens through Jesus Christ, the king of the world. Some of just needs to hear me say that again. Like if you are if you were just grabbed by shame, and you know it. Other people may not be able to see it, but you just know like shame is kind of just suffocating you right now. God wants to lift you from that and restore a sense of nobility to the reality that you are human made in his image. And it all happens through Jesus Christ, the King of the world. And it's not in this detached, aloof sense, but Jesus, the way the scriptures paint this man is that he knew shame up close and personal. Some of the worst nightmares that you've had in your life where when you were in eighth grade and you thought that you had to get up in front of the class and give some type of speaking, public speaking, but that wasn't the nightmare. The nightmare was you're doing this public speech and you're in your underwear. And some of you are like, that's not a nightmare for me because I have a chisel frame, amen for you. We'll have a conversation about that later. But for the vast majority of everybody else, that's terrifying. Yet, Jesus literally ridiculed hung up in public view, naked, bleeding, full of shame, exposed. Yet he experienced all of that for us. The one who lifts shame is intimately acquainted with it. Just want to explore that idea, glory in it, and then ultimately apply it. But first, I got to ground it in the text. <laughs> so um, we're just grounded in the text and just kind of work through this disruptive scene, this dynamic praise before we get to Q&A. There's a lot here, um, but yeah, I'll be good. I actually want to read um, the entire scene and the praise together. It's about two minutes and 30 seconds. One day I'm gonna have the courage to just read the Bible and then get off the stage because God is powerful enough to do work just through the reading of his word. It's the reason why we consistently have scripture reading. Not so that it could be repetitive because God could do something in that moment. One day I'll be courageous enough to practice that by just I mean, shutting up, but that's not today. So let me just read it straight through. It's about two and a half minutes and then we'll, we'll take, take some thoughts out. In the sixth month, this is Luke 1 starting in 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, Galilee, named Nazareth. He's rooting this story in history, not philosophy, real places, real time, Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was was Mary. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You could underline that too. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is a sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. You can underline that one as well. 38, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went. came to my ears, the baby in my womb, leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment, fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And here's the song, here's the song. My soul magnifies the Lord He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. This is such a disruptive praise. And he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned home. There's a concept that has been crushing me. It's this concept of spiritual ventriloquism. Y'all know what a ventriloquist is? So um, I grew up, I like to read, then I went to school. School made me actually hate reading, which is crazy. Um, If you're in school, I see you, all right? But one of the books that I I read growing up was Goosebumps, R.L. Stein. And you know one of the, the most iconic images of Goosebumps was that little puppet doll thing, the mouth, right? and and it was like a it was like a puppet essentially where he could move on its own. It freaked me out. It was like Chucky for kids. It was terrifying. And so 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 a ventriloquist is somebody that uses essentially like a, a puppet, like a glorified elongated sock puppet, put, puts his or her hand in the in the puppet, and then he causes the puppet to talk. But it's really the the ventriloquist's words, right, coming through this puppet. And, <clears throat> excuse me, analogy's acting up. And, and th- what's been crushing me, what's been bothering me, it's been bothering me for quite some time now, but as I've been journeying through Luke, it's really getting me all the more, is this concept of spiritual ventriloquism, where I'm, I'm watching people put words in God's mouth that he never actually said. And they're forcing ideas into the scriptures that aren't actually there. And even when there's a a level of sincerity, right? Well-meaning, good intention, they're making authors say things that they're not actually trying to say. And the reason this jumps out at me is because of the direction I know that we're taking this message. And I know it's gonna bother some people, particularly those of us in a reformed tradition. Amen. Because what we wanna do is we wanna focus on the mechanics of the virgin birth and we wanna, we wanna parse that. Oh my God, look, look at the wisdom and the intricacies of, of how God is able to sustain this promise through the line of David, so he's Joseph, but, but Joseph isn't really the father, Maury, right? But it's the Holy Spirit, but how does it happen? Like, how did this nation? And I'm like, yo fam, that's, that's great. That is, that is, that is, listen, we could go there get some coffee. Brenna's email is on there. We can wax echo about homoousia and all of that. And that's not what Luke is writing this for. We will import dynamics of the virgin birth and miss the beauty of what Luke is talking about here. Luke is on a mission to celebrate and center the disinherited and the other and to show how God is moving uniquely towards them. And not just uniquely moving towards them, but empowering them. We gotta see it. Barren woman, Jesus, like, geez, you're not Jesus. Geo preached on this last week. That would be weird. That's blasphemy. don't die, right? Barren woman, dignity restored, shame lifted. Emphasis on a woman. Emphasis on a woman. There's a structure here. Again, you have this announcement of God, a promise. And what you see is this juxtaposition between those who receive the promise well and those who don't. And what's fascinating is the ones who don't receive this promise well are all men. Zachariah doesn't receive this well. That's he's mute, but Elizabeth does. Evidence with what we just read. Joseph is silent here, but he shouldn't be for us because Matthew talks about how he received this. He was gonna dismiss, because he, he, he was a good man. So he's like, I'm not gonna stone you. I wanna kill you, Mary, but I'm gonna quietly divorce you, like, like lead you out through the back. He doesn't receive this news well. The angel has to come to him, because he heard it from Mary, but the angel had to come to him and say, wait a second, don't do that. Don't do that. This is actually the work of God. Mary receives it well and so forth. And so this is the building blocks for the rest of gospel of Luke where the exemplars in this story are those that we would discredit or disenfranchise, but they are held up as the models of faithfulness. Luke five, Luke seven, Luke 9, It just goes on and on and on and it starts here. So don't, So don't do that weird spiritual ventriloquism. And I'm not talking always about like overt heresy. I'm talking about trying to force your systematics into the scriptures in a way that hijacks what they're actually trying to say. Don't do that. Mr. Beauty, what is happening here. Lifter of shame, restorer of dignity, through Jesus Christ, the King of the world. We, we see that not just on the tail end of, of what happened with, El, with Elizabeth with Elizabeth and how she even says, Oh man, like he's reproved the remote reproach from his people. But but we see this in this scene, and we see this in, in Mary's song, that she is personalizing God doing something in her life, and that's something that he is. He is lifting shame and restoring dignity in a way that kind of go hand in hand, which begs some questions. Well, well how is she experiencing shame and, 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 and how, how is there a diminishing of dignity? And what I would submit to us is that she's experiencing shame and there's diminishing of dignity in sexual, social, cultural ways. That, that, that would be my, my argument that I think what Luke is, is, is bringing out is that there, are, there is an experience of shame and a diminishment of, of dignity in sexual, sociocultural, including religious ways. Let's take it bit by bit. And Lucy, that sounds like you're doing a spiritual ventriloquism. I don't know. Here's how we know. <laughs> Let's humanize what happened here. Put it in its first century context. You're a young woman right? Which means you have no rights. Functional, no rights, no rights. Your agency is suppressed, no rights. Can't own property, can't actually be a disciple, which is why Luke 10 is so dramatic, and Luke 8 is so dramatic, because you have this contingent of women who are supporting the ministry of God, and then you have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, identified as a disciple, super subversive. But again, you can't experience any of that. Your primary stature is childbearing, and attached to that is virginity, so that it can be proved that you haven't slept with anybody, right? And this angel says, hey, by the way, you're about to be pregnant. I'm not even married. I'm betrothed. What it sounds like you're saying is you're trying to give me a death sentence because they're not going to believe that an angel spoke to me. So they're just going to look at me and it's going to be like, "Oh, you—you're one of the women in the city. You belong to the streets." And the scriptures identify that she was deeply troubled. Humanize this. Humanize this. The fear there. But he says, no, the angel continues to talk. He says, no, 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 In fact, you're gonna be blessed for all generations, Mary. And then her, 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 her response, her words, would they be ours whenever there's a troubling statement from God in his word? Would it be, as you said, I'm your servant. Such a powerful statement of submission. Nevertheless, She's now impregnated by the spirit of God. How it happens, the mechanics of it. She goes to Elizabeth. She goes to Elizabeth. As she goes into Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. We read it. And what does Elizabeth do? She publicly affirms that the child in Mary's womb is from God. Mary, you ain't out there in these streets. If nobody else knows it, I know it. And one day it will be seen for all people. Public affirmation, because her sexual ethic wasn't purity-driven or being a prude or whatever. It wasn't repression-oriented. We're gonna get there in a little bit, but it was a it was a sign of. Religious faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. Mary, you've been faithful. You know this to be true because if you look at the song, there's a shift in the use of pronouns. So the beginning portion of her her song of praise, it's first person singular possessive and it's all me and my, look what you've done for me, Look look what you've done for me. It's as, it's as if, if I can, Mary is sitting in this chair. She's reflecting on who God is to her. And we're able to bear witness, but it's very personal. And, she, and so, yes, you can could, you could see, see the greatness of God, lifter of shape, but she's personalizing that. And then at the end of her song, it's, it's like it's reversed. She, she shifts, and then she puts God in the chair. And she's like, God, look at all the stuff that you've done. Look at all of who you are. Don't miss the first part. The first part is super personal, lifter of shame around her sexual life. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to move on, and we'll close. Because of our city, um, we we deal in the reality of formation, Growing people into something, that's, that's, why, that's, that's, that's our vision, growing a people from all people passionate for God. This is this idea that we are becoming something. And formation asks a question, who are we becoming by what we are doing and why we're doing it? That's a formation question. Our city is sexualized. It is a window into the larger move of the world that we inhabit. And when you, when you start to think about formation through the lens of, of our sexual lives, you start thinking about sexual formation, the question is, who is shaping our sexual formation? And I thought about that heavy, because I'm like, we read Mary Virgin, we're like, ooh, what does that mean, right? There's all sorts of stuff that just it produces in us. And I've been thinking about This guy, I mean, I've learned from him. He's a beast, like, his name is John Tyson. And the work that he's super thoughtful, the work he's done around just sexual formation is super profound, and and there's a lot of resources, and and I'm sure you'll ask questions about it, and then I can get those in your hand. Um, But there's two things that we've seen in our current cultural moment regarding sexual formation that I feel like need to be said, and then we can move on. The first is this. Sexual formation in the way of our world trends towards making our sexual lives, the center of our identity, instead of a component of our identity. You are more than who you have sex with. Period. When we, when we make our sexual lives the center of our identity, instead of a component of our identity, we say something that is untrue about what it means to be human that the apex of humanity is sexual expression. That means Jesus was subhuman. Are we gonna say that? Are we Are gonna do that? It's dangerous. Sexual formation in the way of our world trends towards adopting perspectives and practices that can modify others and ourselves. In other words, I, I, I reduce you to anatomy that exists to provoke or arouse sexual desires within me. So I rob you of everything that makes you beautiful in the image of God. And this happens all the time. I was was in the airport and I saw an ad and I'm like, why is this half naked lady selling me bubble gum? This is weird guys. I don't want the bubble gum. Let me avert my eyes and look to the hills, but I'm, you know, and it wasn't even in Miami. That's how I know we in in Jesus name BBLs. Right. And so this is just our world. This is just our world. And it's just to reduce somebody to anatomy to reduce somebody to anatomy is to distort all of the beauty and dignity. God has birthed in them by making them a human. But here's what, here's what Tyson says. He says, he says, Though, like, that may be sexual formation in the way of the world. He says sexual formation in the way of Jesus is not about repression or release of desire, but redirecting desire in a godly manner. Facts. He says sexual formation in the way of Jesus involves a vision of our sexual lives. Like, why has God given this to us? It, It exemplifies what sex is for, which calls us to reorder desires. Sexual formation in the way of Jesus is pursued through the power of the Holy Spirit, not human power. Thus, we rely on the Spirit of God. And it involves practices that shape us into the telos of where human sexuality is headed. God has an aim for all of human sexuality. It results in restoration, not deformation. And sexual formation in the way of Jesus is culturally disruptive. So when you start to follow Jesus' sexual ethics, we did an entire series on this, so I'm not going to go into it. Like what you start to notice is that resisting or following Jesus' way, it doesn't merely feel like inconvenience, it feels like suffering, especially if you're in middle school or high school right now. To resist and to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow a different ethic, I'm gonna stand in the way of covenant. It doesn't feel like an inconvenience, it feels like suffering. And I just I just want to say we see you. We see you wherever you are but it's actually super disruptive. Second century letter to Diognetus said this, one of the lines of the letter I thought was super profound. He said, Christians married as do all others. They marry, but they do not destroy their offspring. What we see there is value for life. They have a common table. That's hospitality, but they don't have a common bed. That's faithfulness in marriage. And 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 this was part of what it, this early Christian ethic that changed an entire nation. God is lifting her dignity, lifting her shame, restoring her dignity, and part of, part and parcel is around her sexual life. Mary, you've been faithful not by your own strength, but because you have believed in the covenant. Last part, then close. She, she she's talking about not just like lifting of dignity, but like I said, there's some social cultural dynamics here, religious as well. She's impoverished and disenfranchised. We already mentioned that because of her being a woman and the disenfranchisement that comes with that. Not only that, but just being Hebrew in a Roman empire where, where their thumb is on you. And so she's oppressed. So there's disenfranchisement that comes with that. That's coming to the end of her song. But, but, but she's impoverished. We know this to be true because she talks about her humblest state and it's not merely a sign of her internal heart condition, humility, but it's also a sign of her economic condition. We know this to be true because of the birth of Jesus. And when Jesus is born in Luke chapter 2, when they're presenting him to the temple, where they're making offering for, 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 for purity in accordance with the law, the law that was given in Leviticus, What they bring to the table is two turtle doves. It says in accordance to the law, two turtle doves or two pigeons. Now, now again, what we said is, Luke is writing this, and, and it's, it's not like Matthew. Matthew has explicit correspondence, so he's just going to blitz people with the Old Testament, where, where Luke has implicit correspondence. So everywhere we're meant to draw on Old Testament history and hold Old Testament imagery. And so when we see that, our mind should go to Luke 12, which the first audience would have known, and they would have said, Luke, wait a second, Leviticus 12. Leviticus 12 says that, that if you're going to present This person, and it's going to be for purity that you should bring a lamb. But if you can't afford it, you could bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. The fact that she's not bringing a lamb and she's bringing two two turtle doves and two pigeons, that, that speaks to her economic state. But get this. So we understand that there are certain ideas associated with how many dollars you have in your bank account, particularly if you're poor, less than, lazy, all of that, worthless, fodder, all of that nonsense. But get this, he is lifting her, he's lifting her shame, restoring her dignity. But do you know what he's not doing? There is no sign that she is going to go from poor to rich. That is not how he's doing it. She is not going from poverty to affluence. He is lifting her shame and he is restoring her dignity by marking her with his presence forever, forever. And she gets that. She says like, all generations are going to sing about me. And it's not because of what I have in my storehouses, but because who I have in my heart and who is, who is with me, the, the God of ages that matters two things. With that, poverty is not a sign of God's displeasure and affluence is not always a sign of God's pleasure. Poverty is not a mark of shame and affluence isn't always a badge of honor. The inverse of that is true. Affluence is not a sign of God's displeasure and poverty isn't always a sign of God's pleasure. Affluence is not a mark of shame and poverty isn't always a badge of honor. Can we get beyond just relating to people based on their economic status? God lifts us from shame wherever we are, restores dignity, meaning he brings us back to the core of what it means to be human, which is that we were made for right relationship with God. Close. That last piece of the song is really subversive for me, man. He says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. His mercy is for those who fear him He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She is acknowledging the messianic hope that has been guiding her people from Genesis chapter 3 to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel, to Moses, to now. She's acknowledging that, that, that God has fulfilled his promises, and in my womb is the Savior of my people. But what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus is not merely the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. This is, this is seen in, in the announcement that, that Gabriel gives his kingdom will have no end. That is not merely chronological. It is geographical. And that means that so there's no, there's no time stamp to it. It's going to go on forever. But there's no boundaries to it either. It's going to extend way beyond Jerusalem. We know that to be true because even in her praise, when he talks about the, the, the dismantling of thrones, that Psalm 2 imagery. End of Psalm 2, kiss the sun lest he be angry. not just king of the Jews, it's king of the world. This sweater was a bad choice. just, I'm like, what is this? I thought it was fall. I'm still in Chicago mentally, terrible choice. I grew up, um, thinking I was a prince. First of all, I'm Nigerian in case those who don't know me, I'm Nigerian and had a lot of PTSD around being Nigerian. Y'all remember those scams early 2000s? Got those emails from Nigerian princes, like, you know, just cash at me a little bit. When I get back to my home country, I got you. Super traumatizing for me. Cause people would be like that. Are you related to him? Racist, right? Yeah. It was super awesome. Crazy stuff. But I did grow I grew up thinking I was a prince. Like, so my dad, we were, we were in this magazine, like, you know, for like international organizations. Every international organization has one. They called it a club. And so we were in people's club, right? It was an ad, and it was like, Prince Onemuche Chuku, Prince Akachuku, that's my older brother, Prince Choke, that's my younger brother, and Prince Chizomon, Princess. And I was like, oh, royalty. Found out that was a lie. And so it was like, uh, I, I, but I grew up thinking it. And what happened was, like, I started examining my economic status, because I grew up in, you know, in an impoverished environment. I'm like, wait a second, how am I a prince, but we can't keep the lights on? Dad, you're fleeing your country. That's what's going on. And so I just straight up asked him, he's like, no, no, it's just a title of honor, kind of like chief. I was like, oh, that explains everything. (laughs) Right? And so there's certain titles, like right now, like you go up to a, a, a dude, you're like, what's up, King? Right? Queen, what's up queen? And, and what we do is we're saying that to, to honor them. You know, there's something special and beautiful about you, but you don't actually have any like right to rule me. Like you don't have any, maybe your home, your home is your castle, whatever. But you don't, that's not how we see Jesus. Cain is not a term of endearment, man. It is a statement of rule and authority You hear me? It is not merely like when we talk about king and queen to people and what we're trying to do is just honor them. This is a statement of rule and authority. He's the king of the world. And that's been hitting me differently because he is undoubtedly the king of the Jews through the line of David. That actually matters because it shows that God does fulfill his promises. He is the king of the entire world. And we see that specifically through Luke, that those who actually receive him in faith are the Gentiles, the world. We see that in Acts as well. The gospel goes forth to the entire nations. But the question I've been thinking about personally, and I wanna leave you with is, is he the king of your heart? Has he actually set up shop in your life and has the right to rule? Or do you just honor him? Do you just honor him? Like, oh man, like you're kind of cool. I like the stuff that you talk about Jesus, amen. But when it comes down to authority, you give suggestions, but I make decisions or is it honor? Cause he is worthy as we see here, but is it also alignment? God, you get to set the course. There's this poem that I think is appropriate. Take Lord, receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, my whole will. All that I have and all that I possess, you gave it all to me. Lord, I give it back to you. Do it as you will, according to your good pleasure. Give me your love and your grace. For with this, I have all that I need. When Jesus is the king of our hearts, those are the words that are alive in us. I wanna invite the people who are doing the Q&R to the stage. And I'm gonna pray um, and we're gonna go right into it. Father, King Jesus, Spirit of power. Your word is alive and just the, the you just you're just so, so good. God, I think about just the the feeling of being forgotten that just consumed your people back then. The feeling of being less than that just consumed them. And you stepped in with power and promise and presence. And God, I think about our current cultural moment and the conversations I'm consistently having with other Christians who just feel forgotten, who feel less than, who feel discarded for a variety of reasons. But God, would they they see you? Would they see you as the one who comes in with power and promise and presence, lifter of shame, restorer of dignity, Jesus, king of the world? If they're in our body right now, if they're in this room right now, if they're watching online right now, would you intercept them? with power presence that their lives would be changed forevermore this we pray in your name jesus amen